Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. G'day everyone again. Um, Great to be with you tonight. I want to start by talking about underdog stories. Um, Don't we love an underdog story? The person who succeeds, who gains the victory against all the odds. Uh, if you're watching the Commonwealth Games, uh, look out for the underdog. Uh, often the, it's the story of you know, someone coming from a poorer nation, uh, didn't have the training facilities, was least expected, the disadvantage, the outsider. And I reckon we love it particularly when it's an Aussie who's the underdog, yeah? Um, and who's the Aussie, the classic underdog Aussie? Uh, it's Stephen Bradbury. Now have a look at this picture. Um, many of you weren't born, I know, but, and, I, and I've used this illustration a couple of times before, um, but I reckon it's, it's, it, you can't get enough of this guy, Stephen Bradbury. He's an Australian icon, he's, he's the underdog's champion, uh, and he's a perfect sermon illustration, the best Australia's produced. Um, 2002... Salt Lake Winter Olympics, uh, his event is the 1,000-metre men's short track speed skating. Okay? Um, somehow, he gets into the final. And even the way he gets into the final is such an underdog story. Um, so he, he thought he was eliminated at the quarterfinal uh, when, he, when he finished third, uh, but one of the skaters was disqualified, and so the, the first two go forward, and so he's one of those two. He moves to the semifinal. In the semi-final, he's coming last, but the three skaters in front of him fall over, uh, and he goes to the he, come, well, he comes to second place. He then makes the final. In the final, he's coming last by a long, long way, and four skaters crash in front of him, and there he is. He skates through and he sails through and he gets gold. That's an underdog story, right? And. He, said, he says in the, in the media afterwards, he says, I don't know, I, I, when I got gold, I didn't know whether to totally celebrate or go away and just hide in a corner because of what had happened. Now, is anyone into speed skating on ice here? It's, it's a very particular sport. Um, no one, of course. Um, have we ever met an Aussie that's into it? But how would you feel? There's the guy... He's competing against elite athletes around the world. So there's nations that take this sport incredibly seriously, put a lot of money into it, US, China, Korea, um, Canada. Uh, and here is this Aussie who takes, takes gold from underneath them. Now, I want to ask you this. Why do you think we love this kind of story? What is it about this story that resonates with us? And I want to say... It resonates with us because it's God's story, because it's the gospel story. But actually, it's, it's the most important story, this kind of story. Um, this is the story that really, truly resonates with the human heart. Uh, and some would say it's the only story. Uh, in fact, many of you would relate because it's your story with God. And have you noticed in the Bible that the Bible is full of underdog stories? Have you noticed this? So uh, stories like David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den, Moses and Pharaoh, uh, Jael and Sisera, the, the Canaanite warlord, 
Even the way Jesus is announced to us in the gospel, baby Jesus versus King Herod killing baby boys. Uh, True stories where the underdog consistently wins is the way God tells his story in the Bible, isn't it? And why is it? Why does God do it this way? Why is there so many underdog stories in the Bible? It's because God is the God of great reversals. God is the God of great reversals. God's power is most clearly shown when the least expected comes to victory. When he brings victory to people against all the odds. Have a listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. He's talking about us, the church. Um, But up on the screen, listen to this. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. That's the way God works. The Apostle Paul knew it personally, 2 Corinthians 12. What does he say? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul knows it himself, 1 Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. There's nothing to boast about. God has done it all. It's his power. It's his might. And when you think about that, how good is it that God is the God of great reversals? How good is that? Because what does that mean? What does that mean? That means that there's hope for everyone, isn't there? There's hope for me, there's hope for you, there's hope for anyone. It doesn't matter how desperate your situation in life is, it doesn't matter how badly you've fallen, how big a hole you've dug in sin, what your past is, what your history is, uh, you are never beyond God's ability to turn it around. You're never beyond forgiveness. Uh, It means that if your back is to the wall, if you feel like, I feel like I'm swimming upstream, all the odds are against me, I'm, I'm feeling down and out, God's saying you are exactly the right place for me to demonstrate my power through you and to turn it all around. God is the God of the underdog. He's the God of the great reversal. That's what we're going to see tonight in Acts chapter 12. So why don't we pray? Why don't we ask God to help us as we hear what he has to say in Acts 12. Our great Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of the miraculous. Uh, You are the God who loves to bring great change and transformation in impossible situations. Uh, You are the God who loves to forgive sinners. Uh, You are the God uh, who, who wants to change us and our lives as we continue to trust in Jesus. Lord, help us to see these things tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So have open in front of you Acts chapter 12. Grab your Bibles open again, your your phone, Acts chapter 12. Um, Here is the next instalment in the unstoppable uh, progression of God's gospel, the good news. The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is going out to the first century world for the very first time. And here's Luke's account. Here's the next chapter in what actually happened there in the first century. So let let me do a few things tonight. Let me take you through the details again. Uh, Let's notice a few things along the way and then at the end some implications for us uh, here at Salt Church. 
So Acts 12, look at verse 1. Early in this chapter, we're introduced to a very powerful figure, a very influential historical figure, King Herod. Uh, It's another reminder to us that we're dealing with real history here, real people, real places. And do keep noticing this as you read through Acts, and particularly notice it tonight because we are dealing with one of those parts of the Bible, Andy mentioned it earlier, the unbelievable, the miraculous, the supernatural... It's completely fair to ask at this point of the Bible to go, are we actually talking about real things here? Is this, did this actually happen? Uh, and Luke goes out of his way to keep reminding us, I'm reporting to you the facts. This is how God has operated in the context of the first century in the real world. Here's what God is doing. It's verifiable history. It's not fairy tale. So verse 1, look at it with me. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Uh, He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now, if you've been following the story of Acts, you know that there's been tons of threats uh, to to the growth of the early church. This feels more than a threat to the growth of the early church. This is King Herod wanting to extinguish the early church, to put people to death, to persecute them. A little bit about Herod. It's not the first time we've we've introduced to Herod or the Herod family. He's mentioned lots of times in the New Testament. Um, Prominent figures in the first century is the Herod family, and lots of them. Uh, This Herod in Acts 12 is is Herod is the grandson, sorry, of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is mentioned in Matthew chapter two. Herod the Great is is the Herod that killed all the infants off at the time that Jesus was born. So there's another historical reference for you from Matthew's Gospel. Uh, He had many wives. He had many sons. He was a powerful, power-hungry man. He was brutal in nature. He was paranoid. So paranoid that he he murdered at least three of his sons. Can you imagine that? That's the character of this man. And one of his surviving sons was Herod Antipas. He's mentioned in in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 6. He's the one who uh, had John the Baptist beheaded. He's also the one involved in sentencing Jesus to death at the end of the Gospels. But one of Herod the Great's sons, who was killed by his father, married his cousin Bernice, or Bernice, sorry, and had many children. Their son, it gets complicated, is is the King Herod in this chapter. Um, Herod Agrippa I is his full name, uh, abbreviated just King Herod. He's mentioned here, and then later on we'll come to King Herod Agrippa II, uh, later in, in Acts. So there's a bit of history behind the Herod family tree. But can you see, here, here is a family, here is a regime, here is a man who is corrupt, immoral, murderous, paranoid. Here is a very, very powerful man though, an intimidatingly powerful man in power. And here um, Herod demonstrates his brutal power by putting James to death by the sword. And then when he sees that that is gaining him popularity with the Jews, what does he do? He decides to kill the Apostle Peter as well. Look at verse 4. Peter is, there's a number of things that happen. Peter's arrested. Uh, Herod appoints 16 soldiers to guard Peter. Uh, It's four shifts uh, with four guards on each shift around the clock. Uh, It's the way they used to do things at that time. And here is Peter locked up 
under this powerful man. All the odds are stacked against him. Here's a man with his back completely against the wall. It's only a matter of days and he will be dead. And look at what, what's happening in verse 5. What is the church... Meanwhile, what is the church doing? Verse 5, what can the church do? They can't match the physical might of Herod um, and his soldiers. They love the apostle. Um, they, they've come into relationship with the God of the universe. They know that God is powerful. They know that God cares. And so verse 5, it says, they earnestly started praying to God for Peter. And so you can imagine the church gathering together, pleading with God, asking God, please look after our brother Peter. Please release him. And here's where God in his mercy brings about a great reversal. Look at verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appears and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Have you ever been in that situation? You, you're actually asleep. You're having a dream. It is incredibly real. So real that it's made you anxious, it's made you afraid, uh, it's, it's made you think, I hope this is a dream, or is this a dream? And you wake up and you realise it is a dream, it's not really happening. Luke, sorry, um, Peter thinks, is that what's happening to me? It's actually not until he, he's led away to safety is it, that he actually realised, no, 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 this is actually happening, this is real. It's an incredible escape, it's a miraculous escape, it's a supernatural escape. And you can't give any credit to Peter, can you? It's not like Peter's a super Christian. It's not like he's got incredible faith. There he is, doubting, not sure what's going on. Is it a dream? He's taken by surprise. But notice even the church is taken by surprise. Did you notice that? It gets really interesting at verse 12. Even funny, doesn't it? When this had dawned on him that it was really happening, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and, and were praying. And Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. Get that name right, it's not Rhonda, it's Rhoda. Um, verse, four, verse 14, when she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Here's this poor guy, he's been locked in prison, he finally gets out, he finally comes to the the door of his friends, his Christian friends, and he gets locked out of their house because she's so excited. She's realised it's him and gone back. And Anyway, he's, he's out on the outside still knocking. They're saying, no, no, you're out of your mind. They told her when she kept insisting that it was so, verse 15, they said, it must be an angel, can't be the Apostle Peter. Uh, that wouldn't happen. Verse 16, but Peter kept on knocking and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. It's actually Peter in the flesh. It's real. And so what have you got? Here are the people who have been praying for Peter, uh, but when God answers their prayer, they, don't, they can't believe it. They can't believe that it's true. And so you, you realise it's, it's not the church that's rescued Peter, is it? It's not because the church had great faith that Peter's re- rescued. 
They prayed. They weren't expecting Peter to escape. I think what you see is this is God's rescue. This is God doing a miraculous thing. Now, I still want to ask a question. Did their prayer make any difference? And I think we want to say absolutely yes. God loves to hear the prayers of his people. In fact, God is working out his plans and purposes using us, involving us, even our prayers. We heard that last week as well. And so it's another encouragement to us, isn't it? To keep praying, to keep calling upon God in prayer. To We wrestle with this so much, don't we? We often forget to pray, we get distracted, we get too busy to pray. Uh, prayer is incredibly important. It's, it's kind of pretty ridiculous, isn't it? We believe that God is in charge, he cares, he's our Heavenly Father, he wants to hear from us, he wants to involve us, he's working out his plans and purposes, including us. Prayer should be our number one priority, and yet we forget it. Uh, what are we saying when we say, oh, I'm actually a bit too busy to pray? I've got more, we're actually saying I've got more important things to do? Are we saying that we are actually in control, um, not God? And so if that's happened for you, can I encourage you to put prayer back on the agenda, uh, to think it through, how can you make prayer happen for your personal life, um, in your, amongst your, your flatmates or your family. Uh, in our small groups, it's incredibly important, isn't it? That, let's encourage one another by praying uh, in our small groups. It's been really great the last couple of weeks to pray for people who don't yet know Jesus. Uh, those uh, prayer cards uh, to be thinking through who is it that I can be praying for? Who, who can I read the Bible with, invite uh, to the things that are coming up? Pray at, we're praying here at church together. Really encouraging to see people pray before church, uh, after church. But notice too, the church here is, are not the super Christians that you might think they are. Sometimes the early church is put up as the, the, the super Christians. Notice that they doubted God, just like we do. They wrestle with, is this true? The kind of the last thing they expected was, their prayer to be actually answered with Peter walking through the door. But they're committed to prayer, aren't they? There's a number of occasions in Acts where we're told the church gathers together to pray. Um, and the God that they are praying to is the God that we pray to, the God who is in control, who can turn around any situation, no matter how bad it looks. And so what happens? He rescues Peter. But there's another reversal going on. Notice the reversal in Herod's life, verse 18. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough, had, had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Now, can you see how incredibly arrogant Herod is? Arrogantly stupid, really, isn't it? If... If you've got Peter in jail, if you've got him surrounded by guards, if you cannot explain this event, do you think you might say there's something else going on here? Uh, there's someone more powerful at work here. Um, I'm not in control. Maybe there is a God. And yet he takes the easy route, doesn't he? He puts the guards to death. He uses them as a scapegoat rather than thinking through, maybe there's more. 
And then God deals with Herod, doesn't he? Look at um, the end of the chapter as Herod is addressing the crowd. Um, They actually worship him as a god. uh, And God strikes him down and and he's eaten by worms and he dies. And you, and you think about that last part of the, the part of the chapter then, you think, is this myth or legend? No, it's Luke telling us this is actually what happened. Have a listen to how the non-Christian historian Josephus records for us this same event, uh, the end of Acts 12. Here's what Josephus records. He says, Agrippa put on a robe made of silver throughout, of quite wonderful weaving, and entered the theatre at break of day. Then the silver shone and glittered wonderfully as the sun's first rays fell on it, and its resplendence inspired a sort of fear and trembling in those who gazed at it. So you get a bit of an idea of what Herod wore. Immediately his flatterers called out from various directions in language which boded him no good, for they invoked him as a god. Be gracious to us, they cried. Hitherto we have referenced you as a human being. But henceforth we confess you to be of more than mortal nature. He did not repudiate them, nor did he repudiate their impious flattery. And a pang of grief pierced his heart. At the same time he was seized with a severe pain in his bowels, and when he had suffered continuously for five days from the pain in his belly, he died. So there's another just historical link with the outside world, not a Christian, Josephus showing us, This is actually part of history. This is actually what happened to Herod. And the lesson here at the end of the chapter is Herod being put in his place by God, isn't it? It's God saying, if if you want to call yourself God, if you want to overstep the mark as a leader, I will show you your place. And God kills him. God shows him who's in control. And so the chapter ends very differently to the way it starts, doesn't it? At the start of the chapter... We're afraid of Herod, he's powerful. Christians look weak, look like they're going to be extinguished. By the end of the chapter, Herod is dead. And what does it say in verse 4? The word of God continued to spread and flourish. God's done an incredible reversal. He's actually shown us again that there's no, there's no threat to the gospel. The good news will, will get out there. There's, it's, this is an unstoppable message that nothing gets in the way in the plans and purposes of God. Well, what do we make of all this for us? What are, what are some of the implications for us? I reckon the first thing we need, you need to ask yourself, here's the challenge. Do you believe in the God of great reversals? Is that the God you believe in? Do you believe that God can actually turn around an incredibly desperate situation? Do you believe that God can do the impossible? Uh, We we see it here in Acts chapter 12. Peter locked up but released. Herod looking so powerful, brought down to the grave. Do you believe that there's no barrier to God doing what he wants to do for his plans, his purposes? Do you believe that nothing will stop the gospel going out and the church growing? Do you believe what Jesus said? Uh, that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it? Even personally, do you believe that there is no personal situation for you that is impossible for God to change? Because if you believe that, if you believe in the God of great reversals, 
I reckon you'll pray. And if you don't believe in the God of great reversals, I reckon you're going to struggle to pray. Because prayer depends on it, doesn't it? God, uh, prayer is us saying, God, you are strong, you are powerful. I am weak, I need help. I want this to change. And prayer is powerful because God is powerful. It's not because we are faithful. It's not because um, our prayers are powerful. See, when the church got together, they, they didn't quite t- totally believe that Peter would be released, did they? It's not how much faith you have, but how much power God has to answer that. You can have the smallest prayer, the smallest amount of faith, and God can act. God can do the impossible. It's, it's all about God doing the impossible that we can't do. It's that lesson that we learn through difficult circumstances, isn't it, that I trust God. He can make a change. He can do it even when I can't. Prayer is actually the opposite of proud arrogance, isn't it? It's, it's not proud arrogance. It's humble confidence in God. It's that recognition that even though I'm insecure, I'm weak, I'm doubting, God is powerful. God can make a change. It's, it's the verse we, we started with. God takes the foolish things, the things that are not, the lowly things, so that the power will be shown in him, not me, so that no one can boast. Be encouraged by these verses. Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, whatever situation you're in, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. He wants to hear from us. Or 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 on the screen again. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. But as we finish, this t- chapter, I reckon, teaches us something else about prayer that's really equally as important and that is don't presume on God's answers don't presume on God's answers see it was God's decision wasn't it to release Peter it was his choice it was his plan God could have heard the prayers of the church and he could have said no to the prayers of the church and not released Peter and it's worth reminding ourselves in this chapter that there's another leader here that dies. Did you notice that early in the chapter? Verse 2, James, the brother of John, is put to death by Herod. Now, we're not told in this chapter, but I'd be very surprised if James wasn't also prayed for by the church, wasn't also loved and revered and honoured as a faithful uh, leader in the early church, and yet he was executed by Herod. And I reckon that that is massively significant, isn't it? What an event for the early church to experience. Here is one of their faithful, loved leaders that they've prayed for who dies, who's put to death. I mean, can you imagine the impact of that? Can you imagine the, just imagine the impact of that today? Imagine the impact of one of the pastors across one of the churches in Lawara, or even one of the pastors here at Soul Church is imprisoned. I hope you'd be praying for me. <laughs> but how devastating to, to learn, actually, they've killed him. 
Can you imagine the impact all the churches would feel? Can you imagine what all the churches would be asking? Where is God in that? How could God let that happen? Is God really in control? Does God still love us? God rescued Peter from Herod, but he allowed James to be killed by him. And it's worth remembering, we don't always understand the plans and purposes of God. We don't always understand the details. We've got confidence in God and his character. But we don't always understand the details. Sometimes we're in a hard spot and God doesn't turn it around. God does say no. And in case you're in any doubt that God can say no to your desperate cry and still love you deeply and still work out his perfect plan, remember that he said no to Jesus. Remember he said no to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember Jesus, before he's about to step towards the cross and face the awful judgment of God, remember Jesus bows before his heavenly Father and says, please take this cup from me. This is so awful what I'm about to face, so dark, so horrible, such fierce judgment for the sins of the world that I'm about to experience at the cross. Please take it from me. But Jesus prays, but not my will, but your will be done. That's, that's the prayer we're to pray, isn't it? That's the prayer Jesus prays. And notice God doesn't take the cup of judgment from Jesus. Jesus dies. The, the reversal for Jesus doesn't come till after his death, after he's suffered, after the pain, the torment, then the resurrection, then the glory. It's actually the same reversal that God promises us in Jesus, isn't it? That one day our broken bodies will be transformed into a glorious heavenly body. That one day every injustice that cries out in our body, in our world, um, that we want God to answer will be righted in heaven. One day every tear will be wiped from our eye. Suffering will be gone. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so massive is the reversal to come, so significant, so eternal, that it will reshape the way we think about our current struggles. If you could picture that reversal to come, if you could live with that reversal in mind, if you could know for sure that that reversal is coming, which it is, it will change the way you think about suffering and troubles and struggles in the here and now. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, they will become like light and momentary troubles. They're just as painful, they're just as real, but compared to the glory that's coming the reversal that's coming, the transformation that's coming, Paul says they are temporary, they are short, they are light, they are momentary and they are outweighed by a massive, massive glory and it, in, in, into eternity. And so he says in verse 18 of chapter 4, 2 Corinthians, we fix therefore our eyes not on what is seen but what is unseen since what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. Have that perspective. God, God won't always turn our situation around. Um, and actually, I think this chapter helps us to, to have a, a realistic and a godly expectation of the Christian life, um, that sometimes you will see great change when you ask God. 
You will see reversal, transformation, even, even the miraculous beyond your expectation. And then other times you'll see suffering and persecution and difficulty because you're following Jesus and that's exactly what Jesus promised would happen. And God is with you when it's uh, miraculously turned around for you and God is with you when it's difficult and you're being persecuted. Uh, God is glorified here and God is glorified here. Uh, The question is, will you trust him in both circumstances? Will you call out to him in prayer uh, and and call out to him in prayer knowing that that great reversal is is coming? I'm going to pray for us as, as we finish. Our great Heavenly Father, thank you again tonight for the reminder of your kindness and your mercy to us in Jesus, that he did cry out to you uh, that the cup might be taken from him and yet because of his death, because the sins of the world were laid upon him, we can be forgiven and there is a great reversal coming for us uh, into eternity. Uh, Father, we do pray that you'd make us a prayerful people, Uh, trusting you to do the miraculous, trusting you to make great change. I thank you that nothing thwarts your plans. I thank you that you are working them out perfectly in accordance with your goodwill. Uh, Lord, we pray that we'd learn to to pray, to trust you, to call upon you, to cry out to you. Uh, We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.